It is now my honor and privilege to turn the pulpit over to Elder Peter Ristow. Elder? Thank you, John. And thanks for reading that uh, long scripture, uh, Psalm 103. I asked John to read that uh, because it is the companion to Psalm 104 that I have the privilege of sharing with you this morning. Uh, Normally, when I have the opportunity to stand in front of you, it's in the context of adult Sunday school. And I see a lot of my students out there. Carol, good morning. Kelly, Diane. As I said, it's my privilege to share with you this morning from Psalm 104. Now, if you've been in any one of my Sunday school classes, you've probably heard me talk about how I grew up in a small town in Connecticut. Uh, That was at a time in our history when driving the seven miles from my home to my grandparents' home in Hartford was an all-day trip. Uh, Some of you remember those times. I grew up in a small neighborhood that was uh, in the shadow of Talcott Mountain and uh, surrounded by woodlands and pastures. And I spent every hour that I could as a child wandering in those woods and out there in the pastures, wading through the brooks. We had brooks in Connecticut. Down here you have runs or creeks. We had brooks and streams up in Connecticut, and I'd wander through those. My family enjoyed camping, and we would go on long uh, road trips, camping, uh, driving from Connecticut to places like Chicotee and Gettysburg, and and even in the wintertime, uh, camping in the Virgin Islands and Puerto Rico. Um, we, we really enjoyed being outdoors together. Uh, as, a, as a teenager, while all of my chums were busy uh, playing sports, I took up the unpopular, or the not very popular at the time, uh, sport, if you will, uh, backpacking. And I would wander the ridgeline through Massachusetts and Connecticut, spend, again, spending as much time as I could outdoors. All of this is to say that when I read 104, Psalm 104, I have a connection with the author of that because it talks about God and the greatness in his creation. Now, Psalm 103 uh, is authored by David. We don't know who the author is of Psalm 104, but they are companion uh, psalms, and they share a lot of the same uh, writing styles, so we can guess that probably David was the author of Psalm 104 again. And as John mentioned, Psalm 103 is about the greatness of God and salvation, and it depicts God as father with his children whereas Psalm 104 is about the greatness of God and creation, and it depicts God as the creator with his creatures. So let's turn to Psalm 104 in our Bibles and follow along. Psalm 104 begins, as did Psalm 103, with the words, Bless the Lord, O my soul. Now this, we can think of as shorthand for all that went before it. When we read Psalm 103, uh, we find it's a meditative psalm and an exhortative psalm. It's one that we would read to ourselves. I find that when I'm feeling a little blue or a little down, that reading Psalm 103 lifts my spirit. So when I read the opening of Psalm 104, I feel the same way. It lifts my spirit. Bless the Lord, O my soul. I'm telling my soul 
to bless the Lord. And all that means and all that comes from that. And so I, it lifts my soul as I approach the Lord and read through Psalm 104. Now, as we read, we need to pay attention to the personal pronouns in this in this uh, psalm. Psalm verse 1 starts again with the author turning his eyes towards heaven and saying, O Lord my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. We can imagine the author as he stands out there in nature. Maybe he's with friends. Maybe he's gathered around a campfire like my family uh, would do in the evening. And we would share with friends and, and tell stories of, about the family. And we'd tell stories about our faith. And that's what we can imagine. We can imagine with a little bit of inspired imagination that here we are gathered before the author of the psalm, whether it was David or someone else. It's someone who spent a great deal of time out there, out there with God in the open. And he, and he describes a God for us. He continues on. And look how now the personal pronoun has changed to he. It started with you, O Lord. And now he turns to those that are around him and is listening, and he turns to them and says, He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariots. He rides on the wings of the wind. He makes them his messengers winds, his ministers flaming fire. This describes a God that is entirely different from us. He's other. He's something else. He's not like us. He's entirely different. And, and the description is, 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 is hard to fathom what he's trying to say because it is so different from us. And he's using words and similes the best that he can describe this transcendent God who is yet connected with us. This, this particular verse uh, also foreshadows the transfiguration. He covering himself with light as with a garment. We read over in Matthew, in Matthew verses 17 and 2, how Jesus transfigured into light. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and his brother and led them high up in a mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. So while the psalmist is describing a God, Jesus connects with that description by through his transfiguration. And Jesus identifies with us through that, that he is indeed one with God our Father. The psalmist continues in verse 5. Again, looking at those that are around him, he set the earth on its foundations so that it should not be moved. And then turning again to heaven, he says, you covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountain. At your rebuke, they fled. At the sound of your thunder, they took to flight. The mountains rose. The valleys sank down to the place that you appointed for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass. 
so that they may not again cover the earth. In June 2014, I was on a flight somewhere, probably getting ready to give a lecture somewhere. And as I typically do when I go on a flight, I'll, I'll pick up the latest version, edition of National Geographic or the Smithsonian Magazine or um, Scientific American. And this time on this trip, I was reading the journal Science. And there was an article in there that talked about that talked about uh, this particular crystalline rock uh, called ringwoodite. And this rock exists in the transition layer, which is like 400 miles below us, between the mantle and the core. And the particular property of this rock is that it contains water. It, inside of its crystalline structure, it contains water. It can hold water. And scientists in this article had estimated that it will, it'll, that the, that in totality, the amount of water that it, that is being held within this crystalline structure is between one and three times the amount of water that currently covers the earth. So now I'm not suggesting necessarily that when God when the waters sank down and God appointed a place for them, that they should not again cover the earth. I'm not, again, I'm not necessarily suggesting that's where the water went. But you can bet that 10,000 years from now, when I have the opportunity, I'll ask him. <laughs> I'll ask him, is that where the water went? Again, this, this uh, speaks to, of course, the promise that God made to Noah, that the water would not again cover the earth. Now he continues on in verse 10. Again, turning his eyes to heaven, he says, You make the springs gush forth in the valleys. They flow between the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field, and wild donkeys quench their thirst. Besides them, the birds of the heavens dwell. They sing among the branches. From your lofty abode you water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. And I want to draw our attention to that. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. This illustrates God's marvelous adaptation, how earth is adapted for his creatures. All of the resources necessary for sustenance are there. Moreover, it's important to note that up to this point, as we've read through this psalm, the verbs have all been past tense. And now the verbs are present tense. So it tells us that God is still intimately and actively involved in his creation. We read on. We read on in verse 14. You caused the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he might bring forth from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of men, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. So again, we see that God is providing sustenance for all, grass for the livestock, plants for man to cultivate. And what does he bring forth? Wine. And we know that 
in biblical times, the water was, in, was often impure, and so they drank wine. But make a special note of what wine, how wine is described here. It's wine to gladden man's heart. God wants man's heart to be glad. Not drunk, but glad. To, to be glad. He also brings forth from plants oil to make his face shine. Now, oil was a medicinal covering that was used to cover and, and uh, take care of dry skin and so on. Uh, oil and wine are both antibacterial. So they were both, this is addressing health issues, medicinal issues, and of course, bread, the strengthened man's heart. These are the three staples that we need. He continues in verse 16 with, The trees of the Lord are watered abundantly. The cedars of Lebanon that he planted, and them the birds build their nests. The stork has her home in the fir trees. The high mountains are for wild goats. The rocks are a refuge for the rock badgers. He made the moon to mark the seasons. The sun knows it's time for setting. God is, has provided shelter for every creature. He's established the moon and the sun to mark the seasons and time. It's the ordering of nature that we see here. Just as we saw back in verses 5 and 6, when it talked about the earth being covered with the waters, to, to the Hebrews, uh, the seas, the waters represented danger and chaos. They were a people that loved and lived on the land, but, but, and they considered the waters dangerous and chaotic. And so when we read here that God told the waters, rebuked the waters and they fled, it's to, it's to depict God subduing chaos and God having control over nature. Where else do we read about God having control over nature? Well, if we turn to Luke, Luke 17, we see that, that Jesus... Calm the storm. Let me turn to 17. This is a familiar story for all of us. One day he got into the boat with his disciples and he said to them, Let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out. And as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filled, filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was calm. And he said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid. And they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this, that he commands even the winds and water, 
that they obey him. I'd like to suggest that it wasn't just the fact that he calmed the storm, but the fact that they connected his calming the storm with this creation event of God rebuking the waters, God bringing order out of chaos. And that's what we see in these verses here. There's something else that I want to draw your attention to in verses 14 to 19. If you look there, you'll see that, that we talk, he talks about grass for the livestock, grass for the livestock, plants for man to cultivate, trees for the birds, the high mountains for wild goats and badgers, and the sun and the moon. Our eyes are drawn heavenward as he describes these. Our, it brings our mind and our heart towards the, the center of what we should be concentrating on. And this is God as he describes these, these things in creation. He continues on in verse 20. You make darkness and it is night. When all the beasts of the forest creep about, the young lions roar for their prey, seeking their food from God. When the sun rises, they steal away and lie down in their dens. Man goes out to his work and to his labor until the evening. This again is the beneficial regulation of time. Night is for the animals and from whom do they seek their food? Even the lions? From God. As they look to God for their food. Day is for man in his work. Both are ordained by God. So we see that, that night is for man's rest and for the animals. And day is for man's work. And that we need to recognize, has been, has been ordained by God as well. Again, casting his eyes heavenward, he continues, O Lord, how manifold are your works, and wisdom have you made them all. Manifold is an interesting word here, because it means not just quantity, but diversity as well. It's, it's both, of those, both of those aspects. How manifold are your works, and wisdom have you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. How manifold? How diverse? Well, if we don't count microbial life, the earth has an estimated 8.7 million different species. If we count microbial life, it's over one trillion. On the macro level, on the large level, with a Hubble telescope, we've been able to estimate that there's over 100 million galaxies. Quite manifold, quite diverse. Here is the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable, living things both small and great. Did you know that every year... Um, as summer approaches, the uh, as summertime approaches on the polar ice caps, and the ice begins to thin and become translucent, that at that time it causes a bloom of algae, 
that bloom of algae is, then causes a bloom or the growth of plankton. And plankton feed on the algae and then the, uh, uh, they just, they, they become innumerable. At any given time in that season, there are more creatures in the polar sea than there are anywhere else in the world. And, and it's that that causes this feeding frenzy that we've often seen on nature shows and so on for whales and penguins and other sea creatures. It's the eating of that plankton that they, they go after. And this happens every year, over 370 million tons of plankton every year. Uh, and that is God and his manifold nature. Again, here is a sea great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable, living things, both small and great. There go the ships and Leviathan, which you formed to play in it. These verses are actually my favorite in this whole psalm, because I wonder, I find this just really curious. What is Leviathan and why are ships mentioned? Ships are mentioned nowhere else in this whole psalm. It's the only thing that's mentioned that's made by man. So why is it here? And what is this thing, Leviathan? Well, Job 41, the whole chapter of Job 41, is a description of Leviathan. You remember that uh, there was the... Uh, the, the counselors that Job had, and they were arguing with Job, uh, just cursed God and died, basically was what they were suggesting. And, and Job said he would not, but he was, he was questioning his birth. Why did God allow me to be born? And finally God appears on the scene and he chastises Job. And one of the things that he says, he describes Leviathan uh, and saying, where were you, Job, when I created Leviathan? Can you draw Leviathan with a fish hook or press down his tongue with a cord? I will not con keep silent concerning his limbs. This is God speaking or his mighty strength or his goodly frame. Who can strip off his outer garment? Who would come near him with a bridle? Who can open the doors of his face? Around his teeth is terror. His back is made of rows of shields, shut up closely as with a seal. Out of his nostrils come forth smoke, as with a boiling pot and burning rushes. He breathes, his breath kindles coals, and a flame comes forth from his mouth. Now, biblical scholars have for years been trying to argue or have been discussing what is Leviathan? Is it a large whale, a giant crocodile, some prehistoric Spinosaurus? I think what is being described here is something different. And I think this is why ships are described here as well. I think that ships represent technology and the mind of man. God has given the man the mind to recognize patterns, to recognize and question and search and an insatiable curiosity as God placed in the mind of man. And because of that, man recognizes patterns in nature, whether it's the, the strands of DNA or the properties, the silica 
that have been turned into computer chips. It's God who has implanted that curiosity and that ability in man to recognize those things and to ferret them out. And I think that ships here represent that aspect of God that deals with technology, that teaches man, that has taught man, even technology. And I believe that Leviathan here depicts the mystery of God's mind. That, that this is something that we don't know, we can't understand, and there are elements and aspects of God that are unrevealed and unknowable. And I think that's what the psalmist is saying here, that this is the mystery and represents the mind of God. As we continue on with verse 27, we see, These all look to you to give them food and due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to the dust. When you set forth your spirit, they are created and you renew the face of the ground. These verses speak of creation's utter dependence upon God. The first two verses, 27 and 28, talk about it from a positive standpoint. They, God provides good things. But when he turns his face or hides his face, they are dismayed. When he takes away the breath, they die. So this can be thought, <clears throat> this can be thought of representing the negative aspect of, their, of the creaturely dependent. Not only dependent upon God, in a positive way, for sustenance, they're dependent upon God for their very life. We're drawing now to the close of this psalm. And we've been sitting around this virtual campfire, if you will, with our, with our psalmist as we've listened to him tell this tale. And now we, we find a surprising element here. We see that he speaks about God rejoicing in his works. Not only should we rejoice in his works, but he wants God to continue to rejoice in his works. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. So God himself rejoices in his own work. It's interesting, again in Job... Job 38, we read in verses 4 through 7. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined his measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Can you imagine it? This is before the creation. The heavenly hosts knew nothing of matter. They had never seen anything uh, that had uh, weight, motion, texture, color, none of that. And then God says, watch this. And he speaks into existence 
all that is, all that we experience, all that we see. John Piper uh, uh, writes, Imagine the awe and wonder that exploded upon the angels. They had never seen or even imagined matter. They are all ministering spirits. They have no material bodies as we do. When God brought material stuff into existence with all of its incredible variety and un- utterly unheard of qualities of sight and sound and smell and touch and taste, this was totally unknown to the angels. God had made it all up. It was not like the unveiling of a new painting made of all the colors and paints that we are already all familiar with. It was absolutely, totally unimaginably new and the response of the sons of God was to shout for joy we can imagine that God too takes that sort of joy in his creation as should we our psalmist continues with I will sing to the Lord as long as I live I will sing praise to my God while I have my being. The appropriate response to all that we've read here is I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have my being. May my meditation be pleasing to him for I rejoice in the Lord. And then he ends with what seems to be a jarring note, but when we take it in context, it's glorious in itself. Let sinners be consumed from the earth and let the wicked be no more. The psalmist is thinking back to the time when God first created all that we are, all that we see. And he said, it is good. And he's thinking forward to a time yet to be revealed where there's a new earth and a new heaven and a new earth. And there will be no wickedness. There will be no, none of that will be on this earth. That is part of God's glory. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, let that be our song, that all of our days we will sing praise to you. We thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to share with these folks here, whether they're here or outside or or online, Lord. We just ask that you would bless each and every one.